Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Well, hello there, Girl Next Door community. How's everyone doing? I hope you're well. Uh, Just before we get going on today's episode, just a quick word for those that are wanting to support this podcast. You can do so by joining um, Buy Me A Coffee platform, cutesy little platform. I've got a goal of having 50 members um, a month, which would be amazing. That way I can podcast a day, a whole day a month, uh, a month, a whole day a week so that I can do more research, bring you guys more content. So a big thank you to members Brooke, Victoria, Chloe, Anonymous, Kylie, Sophie, Louise, Marie, Pam, Christina, Renee, Rochelle, Adriana, new member Lola, and also a big thank you to Sharon for for being a one-off supporter. Appreciate you guys so much. All right. Today is a little bit of a follow-on from the last two weeks. We've been talking about, um, well, the first week we talked about the side effects of puberty blockers when it comes to young people who are wanting to transition their gender. Um, The second week we talked about the hormone replacement therapy, but there are two things that I would like to cover today. The first one is I want to talk a little bit about the realities of gender reassignment surgery, even though that is not very popular here yet in Australia, we all know where this is leading, right? And then the second thing where I want to spend a little bit more time is on the number of companies, no matter where we look, uh, that are, you know, flying the rainbow flag, uh, supporting all things rainbow. Um, And so we're going to talk about why that might be. Why does this seem to be happening en masse? And I'm pretty sure you guys are going to be as surprised as I was. And that today I will be telling you a whole heap of information that you probably have never heard before. But let's just start off with looking at the effects of gender reassignment surgery. As we talked about previously, this whole Uh, push for young people who are uncomfortable in their bodies to be transitioning genders. Of course, the aim is to get them before puberty starts. That is, as I talked about, Australia is number one, uh, according to the World Health uh, Trans Community Guidelines. Australia are doing a great job because we are giving puberty blockers or suggesting puberty blockers at a very, very young age. Now, I stumbled across a little bit more information on these puberty blockers that I wanted to share with you because I think it's really important that we have all the facts because this is what these young people are not told. They're not told all of the facts and the truth. They just hop on social media and they see this amazing community like the one created by Dylan Mulvaney. And they're like, oh, this is going to fix all of my problems. But in exchange, in reality, they get a whole heap of terrible, irreversible, lifelong problems. So I actually found a a document since I spoke to you guys last, which 
is Australian. Now, I like to find Australian things because it's obviously more relevant to most of the GND listeners, but this document, you can look it up yourself. It is called the Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines, uh, obviously around trans care, and it blew my brain even further. It actually had a really clear table, which was breaking down um, with uh, puberty blockers and hormone uh, replacement therapy. Uh, And it showed you the different um, kinds of things that will be affected. And then at the end of the table, it said if these things were reversible or not reversible. Now, I talked a lot about this in the last two episodes that a lot of these things we've been told are reversible, but now one by one, Governments are taking those sweet little words off their website because a lot of these are not reversible. And so there were a few more things that I did not talk about because I was not aware of them. And so I wanted to let you know and give you a little bit more information and a little bit more clarity on these puberty blockers because it really is disturbing. And this time it's around the boys. So boys who take puberty blockers to things happen that they don't tell you that really are quite devastating. And the first one is that because male sperm usually matures about halfway through puberty, which by the way, I didn't know this, their their sperm matures at the same time roughly that their voice deepens. So because they matures halfway through, if they're given puberty blockers at the start, their sperm doesn't get that opportunity to mature. So obviously there's going to be fertility repercussions. Now, I don't know what would happen on this table when it said, is this reversible? It just had the word likely. And the reason that they put the word likely is because they don't really know because not enough studies have been done. Not enough young people have started puberty blockers, stopped them, and then the long-term data been taken uh, to see if there are long-term results. So that only means one thing, and I've already said this, these are experimental. And we know they're experimental because the puberty blockers that they're given are not even approved. They're not approved by the TGA for this use. They're only approved for little children who start early onset puberty, which is very, very, very unusual. So they've never studied what these puberty blockers do to a boy when there's a pause pressed on their puberty and their sperm doesn't get to mature. So that is hugely concerning. So when I see governments, when I see organizations talking about trans care and how you know we need to be compassionate to our children who are struggling. Well, yeah, of course we need to be compassionate, but is that compassionate? In my book, that is not compassionate. Um, And the second thing is, if boys begin puberty blockers early, their genitals never fully mature, right? Now, I talked about how puberty blockers can have effect on stunting their growth height-wise, but it also means that their genitals don't mature because that also happens about midway during puberty. Now, this is really disturbing because if they decide not to go ahead and they stop the puberty blockers, then they've got underdeveloped genitals, right? And we don't know. There's no data out there that I could find to see if 
that reverses and if once puberty blockers are stopped, if they continue to mature. So again, experimental. And if they do decide to go ahead with the hormone replacement therapy and then with surgery, they're at a disadvantage because there's a reduced availability of skin for the creation of a female genital part. So um, I want to play to you this little snippet uh, before I go talking about the gender reassignment surgery, this snippet of a guy that was interviewing Jordan Peterson. Now, please excuse the swear word. I'm just warning you there's a swear word coming, but I can understand Jordan Peterson is so angry. He is so angry that adults are allowing this to happen to children. So take a listen to this. You can convert kids surgically. So tell me how we can have, be having this conversation even. It's oh, yeah. just beyond comprehension. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think people have very different views. Uh, people, a lot of people just want to tolerate it and say, this is fine. Tolerate it's... what? Tolerate what? Castration and double mastectomies for 13 year olds? Well, yeah, no, seriously, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. That's not tolerance. That's, that's crossed the line. That is not tolerance. That, that, is, in that is an inexcusable silence on the part of the majority, the vast majority, who knows this to be wrong in the deepest possible sense. Most of the bloody Nazi propaganda that led to the extermination policies at the beginning of World War II were predicated initially on compassion and tolerance. So this whole, we're being compassionate and tolerant. It's like, no, you're not. See, and this is the way they get us. This is the way that they trick us by, by saying, oh, this is compassionate. And we need people like Jordan Petersons. We need the you of the world to stand up and go, this is not compassionate. Every adult in the depths of their soul knows that this is not compassionate. And yet here we've got, and I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, but here we've got company after company after company here in Australia advocating for this, advertising this, getting behind this. And we just merrily go along and we shop in those places and we say nothing. And you are going to be shocked in a moment at what I tell you about where the pressure is coming from. But before we go there, let's just explore this gender reassignment surgery. Now, like I said, it's a lot more rare here in Australia at the moment. But it really is the goal, right? Like, why would you start a young person on puberty blockers and then encourage them to hormone replacement therapy if they're not going to continue on to go the whole hog? Like, the whole reason behind the trans movement is for people to be completely transitioning. That's the goal. They're not going to be happy just to stop at puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapy. Now, either way, whether they stop the, the blockers or whether they go on to do surgery, the results are catastrophic. I've talked about the irreversible nature of hormone replacement therapy. That has lifelong consequences for these young people's lives. But so does the gender reassignment surgery. And the thing is, the gender reassignment surgery, that is not reversible. Obviously, there's, we all know about top surgery. Anyone who agrees to an underage girl having a double mastectomy needs their head read. It is barbaric and it is an absolute disgrace. But where I want to focus today is on bottom surgery. Uh, and I'm, I'm only just for time's sake because I want to talk about the companies. I'm just going to talk about what happens when a female undergoes reassignment surgery to become a male. 
Now, a lot of my information I've gotten from a trans male called Scott Nugent. Now, he was featured on the What is a Woman, Matt Walsh um, documentary, which, by the way, if you haven't seen that, try and get your hands on that. I watched it three times. It was so fascinating how people could not answer that question, what is a woman? Scott Nugent was a gay female called Kylie, uh, obviously very uh, very unhappy and, and suffering with mental health issues uh, and was really kind of coerced and uh, convinced by the trans community to undertake the full reassignment surgery. Now, some articles call him a he, some call him a she. Uh, he outrightly says that he is a uh, biological female, but obviously the reassignment surgery and what they've done to him can't be reversed. And so he does look like a male. So on the outward, he look, he lives like a male, but he will actively say that he is a female. Now you can look at all of the links for everything I'm going to tell you. He links all of the studies uh, on his website called Trey Voices, T-R-E Voices. So let's just talk a little bit about this. And I find this absolutely fascinating that my whole life, uh, for decades, all I've heard about is empowering women. Right, you've got the feminist movement. You've got, um, you know, people in general trying to squish the patriarchy and, uh, you know, p- pull up and, and empower women. And yet, this whole uh, trans community, and we all are seeing the results of of biological men competing with women in sports. This is not empowering women. And when you hear what I'm about to tell you about bottom surgery for females to become males, it is absolutely horrendous. Now it's known as a phalloplasty and the surgery takes um, from what Scott said on his website, at least 10 hours where they have to begin in a female is to remove the uterus and to remove the female genital. I won't come out with all the words just in case you've got kids listening in the car, but what they do in order to then once they've removed those two things, in order to create the, the the male part, they have to take skin from another part of the body. Now, the three choices are the forearm, the thigh, or the upper back. Now, Scott was um, convinced that the best place to take it from was the forearm because that's the most sensitive skin. And they've got two aims with creating a male uh, genital part. They want it to try and function like a genuine male genital part. So those two things being so that they can, the trans man can uh, pee standing up and to try and give them, well, according to all their websites, to give them the ability for it to work uh, for sexual intimacy, which by the way, is a fallacy in itself because the chances of that happening is actually really, really, really low. So they take skin for harvesting. Now, according to Scott, where they take the skin from, your body in that part will never look the same again. You look like a burn victim because they have to take so much of the skin and get uh, right down, particularly when it comes to the forearm, the forearm being the best chance uh, for a functioning genital. um, Basically, they have to dig really deep and take as much skin as they can because they're trying to take also you know, the nerves, which are the parts that make it so sensitive. So according to Scott, you are literally left handicapped 
for the rest of your life. There are many things that he can no longer do with that arm. Um, I think he finds it hard even to pick up a pen and to write. Uh, He said that you will very likely be left with nerve damage because the surgeon has to cut so deep and recovery just of the arm takes years. And you might end up having a chance of peeing standing up, but there is a lot of complications that people don't realize. First of all, a female urethra, which is the part that the urine passes through, is a lot shorter than a male urethra. So that's another part of the surgery. They have to create a longer urethra. Now, it's always easy to cut things out. It's not so easy to create. And the complication rate of this surgery is between 39 and 95%. That is a huge complication rate. And notice how massive that difference is from 39 to 95% because it's experimental and they don't really know. They don't have enough to go by. But patients often end up with endless infections. Scott has endless infections and he says that one day antibiotics are not going to work because we all know that our bodies become antibiotic resistant. The other thing, the complication people don't tell you, is that fistulas form, which are like little holes. And so when, yes, you might be able to stand up to pee, but before the pee can come out of your created male genital, it starts leaking out of these fistulas, these little holes. And according to Scott, it leaks out even when you're not peeing, which means that you smell. He says that he smells like an old old man sitting in a, in a nappy in an old folks home. So sexual intimacy, like I said, is not likely. And then there are other things like for at least four to six weeks and usually for more like months, you while your genital, your new genital heals, you have to pee via a tube that comes out the side of your body. So there are just so many complications that people don't tell you about. And I know for Scott that his life has been completely ruined by this surgery. And that's why he's now um, speaking out against it. So where I want to focus for the rest of the podcast, though, is I have no doubt that you have also noticed that everywhere we turn, company after company, are becoming advocates for this, because this apparently is compassionate. They're becoming advocates for diversity and inclusion and for everything rainbow flag. Now, it doesn't matter these days what kind of company it is. It could be a supermarket, a bookstore, an insurance company, a clothing company. The pride flag seems to be front and center of their websites and their stores and their social media. So just a couple of examples. Coles are really going for it this year. They even had a float in the Mardi Gras this year. And recently, they revealed a Pride-themed delivery truck in Brisbane, which delivers Pride and groceries, apparently, according to them. The popular clothing store, Universal, they did a collab with Puff Doof in Sydney to launch the World Pride Party at the start of Mardi Gras this year. And if you go through their Instagram, post after post has influencers wearing their clothes to the Mardi Gras. It literally went on for weeks. We all know that Virgin Airline had their very first Pride flight from Adelaide to Sydney. Optus are another huge sponsor of the Mardi Gras. But these companies are not just advocating this around the Mardi Gras, they're doing it all year long. An example is Aesop, a skincare company. I used to, last year, I gave um, all of our staff, we gave them packs 
from Aesop. Well, I won't be doing that this year because they're also pushing this hardcore. They've opened up a queer library in Sydney and now in Melbourne. Why? They're meant to be selling skincare, not opening up a library. Well, it turns out that companies, guys, and this is a total bombshell that you probably do not know about, but now you will not be able to unsee it. And once you know, you realize they're not even trying to hide this. This is like mainstream. Companies are being scored and rated when it comes to how well they're doing uh, when it comes to the inclusion of the pride community. Now, this score is known as the Australian Workplace Equality Index. Look it up, the AWEI. Now, at the moment, this is voluntary. But next week, I'm going to show you how this scoring system is part of a larger and worldwide scoring system, which they're talking about mandating for companies. Basically, it's a scoring system around how well companies do with impacting uh, environmental and societal issues. So let's, though, we'll do that next week. Let's stick with this AWEI. Companies at the moment can join to be a member of these pride inclusion programs. And I'll explain a few of these programs to you in a moment. And what happens is these companies are then examined thoroughly for the inclusion of the pride community within their business. Now that can be from the way they treat their employers to all the way through to to their products, to their social media, and to their participation in pride events. Now, the body who are policing, the organization policing this Australian Workplace Equality Index is known as ACON, A-C-O-N. Now, who are ACON? They are a New South Wales leading HIV and LGBTQ health organization. And guess who their primary funders are? Needless to say, it's the government. It's the New South Wales government the health department of the government, mind you, are the primary funders. Now, ACON have been commissioned, even though they are in New South Wales, they've been commissioned with setting these national inclusion benchmarks. They're the ones who outwork and control this AWEI. So basically, these companies, once they sign up and they're assessed, they get scored and then there's this big award night and it's massive. And these awards are put on their websites and it's a really, really big deal. All right. Let me tell you, there are, I think, four pride inclusion programs that they deliver. The first one is pride in diversity. So that's basically a program that helps employers to uh, support um, within their own within their own company. So it basically is a program for the LGBTQ community specializing in HR and helping helping their companies move towards change, right? The second one is Pride in Sport. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. So obviously, this is a program that assists all the sporting codes to include the Pride community. Then we have the Pride in Health and Wellbeing. So this program is especially for all of the health and wellbeing sectors. 
uh, and they help to companies to design policy and processes, recruit, recruitment, advocacy, staff training, etc. And then the final program is called Pride Training. Any company can sign up to this. This is basically where uh, Acon will come in and they'll help your company. Um, they'll train all of your staff on how to help them better deliver inclusive and affirming practices. So that makes sense now, doesn't it? This is not just bottom-up pressure of society. This is pressure being applied from the top down. And when you consider that the primary funder of this is the New South Wales government, that means that our own government is the one putting the pressure on all of these companies. Now, let's just go back for a minute to the pride in sport. Now, I've talked about the Manly Seven. We all know they do a pride round. Um, they're becoming more and more uh, vocal, I guess, when it comes to the pride community. And not just the AFL, not just the rugby, every sporting code in Australia, or nearly all, are adopting pride this and pride that. They're being ranked on it, test on it, and judged by it. Now, this pride in sport program, what their aim is, is to not just be inclusive of their employees, but to be inclusive when it comes to their players, that's why we're getting trans people playing in sporting codes. And they also want their volunteers and their spectators to also be inclusive. So when we also consider on top of that where the funding is coming from for a lot of these sporting codes, it all begins to make sense. So when we think about just the AFL, and I've got a link here, but there's a whole bunch of government government partners that help fund the AFL. So of course, these sporting codes are under pressure to do what they're told. So let me tell you a, a small part of the list of the companies who are uh, who have been listed last year in 2022 as being Australia's top organisations for the LGBT inclusion. Now, 2023 has not been named yet. People can still apply. Now, there are 182 companies in Australia that are a part of this ACON organisation, but I'll just tell you a few of the ones that you are most likely going to recognise who have signed up and have been listed, not just signed up, but these guys have been listed as some of the top organizations for pride inclusions. AGL Energy, the Australian Taxation Office, the National Australia Bank, QBE Insurance, Woolworths, the ABC, Coles, the Queensland Department of Education, IBM, Origin Energy, SBS, the University of Queensland, the University of Sydney, the University of Melbourne, the University of Western Australia, the University of Wollongong, Macquarie University, American Express, the CSIRO, oh, I forgot Griffith University, the Australian Border Force, the New South Wales Police, the Australian Government Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Ah, Maybe that's why our Prime Minister was marching this year. And the Australian Government Department of Social Services and Westpac. These are just a few of the companies that you would recognise. Now, let's unpack some of the awards that are given. So when it comes to sporting codes, there are awards for the LGBT Ally of the Year. This is when they pick someone in the sporting industry 
uh, who is not lesbian, gay, bi, trans, or queer, who have given an outstanding contribution towards the community. Then there's the executive leader of the year. So this is someone in executive leadership who's given an outstanding contribution for the Pride uh, community. Then there's an award for the inclusive coach of the year. There is even a positive media award that recognizes a journalist contribution towards the LGBTQT sporting related media. So my question is this, why, I mean, we know, we know why I've just explained why, but why this particular community? Like, aren't there plenty of other minority communities that we could be giving attention to? Especially in the light of everything I've told you, that this is not compassion, that this is harming people irrevocably, unequivocally, and irreversibly. Like, imagine if this attention was given to any other group of people. Let's look at the Christian community right now. Imagine if there was an award for the sporting code who was the biggest contributor to the inclusion of the Christian community. What a shock that would be. Imagine if there was an award given to the journalist who highlighted the Jewish community the most through media. Imagine if there was an award and recognition given for the company who employed the most Down syndrome people. And what about giving an award to the leader who's made the most significant contributions to the inclusion of people who live in poverty? Or what about the most improved employer award for the inclusion of men in roles such as nursing? That would just be crazy. But it's so interesting that the government and these companies are just picking one minority group. And the narrative is that that is the the only minority group that we can all be investing in. Now, of course, we want everyone to feel loved. I'm not saying we don't want every community to feel loved. We do. We want every person to feel loved and included and cared for. And we want every person to have equal opportunities. But what's happening here, this is tipping the scales the other way, and it's completely out of balance. And it's for something that we are told is tolerant and compassion, but I fail to see where the tolerance and the compassion actually is. In fact, like Jordan Peterson said, where the heck are the adults standing up to this? to be persuading young people and children toward all of this when all of the treatments are harmful, when they're far too young to even know about such things, let alone make decisions. They're not going to understand the repercussions of puberty blockers, the repercussions of hormone therapy, and certainly not the repercussions of gender reassignment surgery. This is irresponsible on the part of every single adult involved, and it is an absolute disgrace that our government is the one pushing it. And you think, of, you think of being a child right now in today's society or a young person, everywhere they turn, this is being pushed on them. I know my own son at school, every time he walks into a library, there's a, a, a pride stand that goes for the whole month, the whole month, walking into his library. And yet when he asked the deputy principal if he could put up decorations for Christmas, do you know what she said to him? I was so flipping mad, I nearly emailed the school. But he's like, Mum, let me deal with it. And he is old enough to deal with it. When he asked if he could put up Christmas decorations, he was told that he couldn't do that 
because that is not inclusive. What the heck? And my, I said to him, you go back to that deputy and you say, oh, you mean that every single kid almost in this school is not going to be receiving Christmas presents and doesn't celebrate Christmas? Like I'm being exclusive by wanting to put up Christmas decorations when we all know that the majority of people in their school, I think it would be only uh, the Muslim community and the J and the Jehovah's Witness community that wouldn't celebrate and Jewish community of which there are none in our school anyway. It's just absolutely crazy. But every which way our young people turn at school, at university, walking through the supermarket, shopping for clothes, looking on social media, it's being forced upon them by the government, by the education system, and now companies who are being rewarded for it and at the very least are being manipulated to participate. So we've now got companies who are spending more time on making sure they're ticking the gender inclusive box than actually selling food or insurance or banking. Guess who the 2017 employer of the year was according to ACON? It was the ANZ. But like I said, this is part of a bigger system. The AWEI, the Australian Workplace Equality Index, is actually part of a larger scoring system, which we are not told about, but all businesses soon are going to be mandated to participate in. But I want you guys to come back for that next week. I'm hoping to have a friend of mine who's actually um, almost a lawyer actually as well to talk about this uh, because she was the one that actually pointed this out because she's like, Renee, do you know that these companies are being um, getting this score and in America are actually being paid? Uh, that's not happening yet in Australia, although there is a big link to that. But I, I don't want to spoil next week. So spoiler, no more spoiler alerts. But Please come along next week because this makes sense. This is not just society trying to be compassionate. This is a ideology being forced on us from the top down. And it is about time that we vacated it. So guys, thank you for joining me. I look forward to being with you on Friday for Parenthood Friday, but please make sure go back and listen to the last two. Don't miss the next one. Uh, And also thank you for supporting this podcast. The link is in the show notes below or in my Instagram, girlnextdoor.podcast. Love you guys. And I'll be with you on Friday. Until then, have a good one. Bye.